Welcome to Crawl Space. I'm Tim here today with Lance. Lance, how's it going today? It is going fantastic today, Tim. I'm thrilled to be here once again with a couple of really great guests that are coming up. Hope everyone is doing great out there. I hope you're doing well, sir. How are you? I'm doing great. Thanks a lot for asking. I'm excited to introduce this conversation that we had with two new friends that we met at Obsessed Fest. You may have heard of them. It's Saruti Bala and Hannah McGuire of Red Handed. Very popular podcast out of the UK. They cover true crime. We had a great time with them at Obsessed Fest back in October of 2022. Hopefully we get to see them again in 2023 at Obsessed Fest again. But we will be seeing them at their live show, which is coming up Wednesday, April 5th in New York City. They have a whole string of North American live shows that they are doing. You can check out all of that information at redhandedpodcast.com. And the conversation today, it's lighthearted. And then it really dips into some serious stuff as we discuss the Idaho quadruple murder that happened in November of 2022. Yes, Ruti and Hannah are so great great to speak with. We first asked them about their friendship, about their show a little bit, and then we spoke about the Idaho Four murders. That is the murders of Madison Mogul, Kaylee Goncalves, Zana Kernodal, and Ethan Chapin. Red Handed has covered this case pretty in-depth, and they did a great job uh, respectfully as well. So I think that was one of the reasons why we spoke about it here in our conversation for Crawl Space. They know a lot about it. And they have a lot of good insights into the mind of whoever perpetrated a crime like this, this brutal crime. We did record this a week ago, and since then, there have been a number of updates. So if you hear something that might sound a little dated, just keep in mind this was recorded a week ago. And that's also how fast things are breaking in this particular case. And everything that we speak about as far as Brian Koberger goes, is all legend. He is not guilty in a court of law at this point, so we want to respect that. And Tim, if people like what they hear in this episode, but they want to hear it without the ads, even though the ads are very useful, is there a spot that they could go to perhaps subscribe to? You don't say. There is. You can actually subscribe these days on Apple Podcasts to Crawlspace Premium. You get every single episode of Crawlspace ad-free, and you also get our weekly bonus show, Lance. And and if you don't have Apple Podcasts, but you still want to subscribe to Crawlspace Premium, you can go to crawlspace.supportingcast.fm and you can get the same product there. And you can follow the Red Handed Podcast on pretty much every social media outlet, Instagram, Twitter, YouTube. It's Red Handed The Pod. Now, I know their social media handle, Tim. I have no idea what ours is. Can you refresh my memory? That's so weird that you don't know what ours is. You can follow us at Crawlspace at Crawlspace or Crawlspace Podcast on social media. Thank you very much for listening, everybody. We really appreciate it. And give us a couple of minutes. We're going to break real quick for some sponsors, and then we'll get right to the women from Red-Handed. Thanks to our sponsors, and now we're back to the program. Welcome to the podcast, Hannah and Saruti of Red-Handed. How are you today? Hi, Tim. Hooray. Hi. Yeah, we're so good. Very happy to be here. Yeah, doing great. Finally. You're cheering us up on a very, very cold and stormy day here in London. So thank you. Hello. Aw. You said before we started recording that... You're out of bed and not crying, so it's a win. What's going on over there? The weather's just miserable. 
Yeah. Um, and January is always really hard in London because it gets dark at like 3 p.m. So you wake up and it's dark and then you go to work and then it gets dark at like lunchtime and then you go home in the dark. So. <laughs> but your soul is just filled with darkness. Exactly. I know the weather in uh, a few locations across the globe. Like you hear about the Bahamas. You understand what the weather's <laughs> like in the Bahamas. I've never and I've spoken to many people in the UK. I've never really dug into what winter is like in the UK. So you said it's terrible right now. Are we, uh, is it snowing? When British people say it's terrible, we mean that it's cold and gray outside and we just like to complain. That's what it means. I'll be honest. Yeah, you can totally complain. I was just curious from my own like meteorological curiosity. <laughs> Not that interesting is how I would sum it up. Do you like my background? I hate it. Hate it. <laughs> hate it. Hate you. Do I'll, it change it. I'll change it. That's I'll actually change our it. like most hated press shot of all time. It was the first shoot we ever did. We had no idea what we were doing. Somehow we think we have blasted it off the internet, but somehow every time there is a write up of something in like in anything, they always manage to find that fucking picture. This is what kids. And then we have to be in bed for three days. Exactly. This so is why kids don't put things on the internet because you will never get it down again. Yeah, you do look very serious. The cycle. Starts all over again now. Yeah, I'll, I'll get something new. <laughs> Give me one second. Well, we met last October 2022 at the fantastic event known as Obsessed Fest. How'd you guys like that? We had such a great time. We loved it. You know, we've said this to you guys before. We came to Obsessed Fest because Patrick and Jillian asked us to, and they're just two of the loveliest people you could ever hope to meet in the podcasting community. But Hannah and I had no expectations. I fully thought, probably going to just spend quite a lot of time in my hotel room because we don't know anybody there but we had the best time the people who were there it was huge for a first year event it was completely crazy and um, the quality of the people that were there and just how happy everyone was it was so nice and obviously we got to meet you tim lance and also the lovely jen who isn't here Serious Jen. Yeah, where's Serious, serious Jen? Jen. <laughs> Do you just call her Serious Jen? <laughs> Fantastic. She's consumed by the shadows of the new podcast that she's working on called Dark Valley. Can't wait to hear about that, actually, and how you guys are getting on with it. And listen to, to all of it. How's it going? Yeah, it's, it's going well. Yeah, it's going to be great. Hopefully out in the spring, and we'll definitely have more about that. But this isn't about that and about us, you two. <laughs> Cut it out. This is, uh, we're interviewing you. Oh, no. Tell us about your podcast and your friendship. How did you two meet? Well, I think it would have been six and a half years ago now when we met each other. Seven years? I don't know. I feel like we just guess every time we get I think every time now. we get asked that question, we just, we're just like, oh, yeah, well, it was 1924. <laughs> and... The good thing is we're not like a married couple where one of us knows and the other one's like, she doesn't know when we met. We don't know. We don't know. It was probably six years ago. Yeah. Maybe six and a half years ago. I was living in a really horrible property guardianship in Poplar, which is not a very nice area of London. And basically property guardianship is where you pay less rent to stop people squatting in buildings that are basically uninhabitable. And that's what I was doing. <laughs> to stop people who might make the building worse than you would moving yes. in. Yes. So, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> One of my like co-guardians was an American and he was like, hey, my entire extended family is going to come over for the whole of Thanksgiving week. Won't that be fun? And then there's this like Americans on airbeds on the landing. I'd like step over his grandma to get into my bedroom. It was a nightmare. Improbably um, like a 
five, six hundred square foot. Yes, yeah, apartment. very ex- <laughs> extremely small. Three of us living there anyway, and then there were children and like grannies. It was awful. And then he was like, "Let's have a Thanksgiving dinner." Oh, P.S. Everyone's vegan. I was like, "Oh, fucking great!" And then uh, another one of our frequent guests was Saruti's childhood friend who was sleeping on our sofa at the time, and he was like, "Oh, my friend's just come back from traveling. Can she come?" And I was like, "Well, fine. There's already a million people in this fucking apartment, so what's one more? No problem." And then in walked. <laughs> This magnificent beast. Um, I do also have to say that the person who was my friend, who was sleeping on the sofa of a property guardianship, she's not even paying rent in this horrible place that you were living in, <laughs> paints me in quite a bad light. But I did not know that he wasn't paying rent. I did not know he was just sleeping on the sofa. Otherwise, I would never have fucking come to that party. <laughs> Jesus Christ. I really think that the US is about five years ahead podcasting-wise to where the UK is. So six years ago, I didn't know anybody who was listening to podcasts. So when I met Sarun, she was not only listening to podcasts, but listening to the reasonably niche true crime ones that I was. It felt like this like enormous revelation. And then we started talking about John Bonnet Ramsey at the dinner table in front of children. Then towards the end of the evening, we were like, fuck it, let's just, let's just start a podcast. And yeah. then... We did. Yeah, that is that is basically it. We, Which sounds so unbelievable now, does. but that is genuinely what happened. I would never do that now. I would never do that now. Go to a party as long as I don't know. The only reason I knew podcasts actually was because I'd just come back from traveling. So I'd been away for about 10 months and I'd done five months of those 10 months on my own. So you get pretty sick pretty quickly of just listening to music. And it was actually my dad who was like, oh, you should listen to podcasts. And I was like, what's the podcast? I remember having this conversation with my dad. And I think back then the podcast space in the UK was very much like tech, geeky tech guys, Mm. one of whom is my dad, was listening to podcasts. And so I was like, okay. And then I discovered the magical world of podcasting. And I realized that I could sit in a hostel and download hours and hours and hours of incredible content being put out mainly by Americans at that point onto my phone and then just listen on airplane mode on like 27 hour buses across Asia and not feel alone. It was just such a revelation. And when I came back, I was like this little podcast evangelist. I was talking to everyone about it, but everyone was just giving me sort of blank Mm. looks until I met Hannah. And honestly, when we left that party, did not think I would ever see her again. Didn't think I'd, I actually left and I was like, was her name Hannah or was it Anna? I can't remember. <laughs> we were very drunk. We were very drunk. You have to understand. And then um, <laughs> we actually had exchanged numbers and we started talking and then we went on like a podcast friendship date to a pub in East London. And we just sort of spent hours and hours and hours talking about podcasts, talking about true crime. I remember texting my friends after like, I met someone and they were like, finally. And I was like, oh no, it's not a guy. It's a girl. And we're (laughs) going to start a podcast together, (laughs) a murder podcast. And then unbelievably, because we had no background at all in anything to do with podcasting, broadcasting, scripting, researching, editing, nothing at all. Completely 100% no experience. I'd come from like doing economics at uni and then I worked in the unglamorous world of um, conference production and Hannah worked in musical theatre. So we really just starting completely blind. Mm. No idea what we were letting ourselves in for. But thank God we did because now we get to do the best job ever full time. Yeah. And so you've gone on to take over the world with your podcast and it's fantastic. 
It's called Red Handed. Not only do you have a hit podcast, but you wrote a, a great book and now you're touring. Tell us about your book before we uh, discuss the tour. Oh, well, the book was really kind of a project that came out of nowhere. We were basically planning on touring over the years of COVID. Hannah went full time in mid 2019. And then yes. I went full time in the end of 2019, like Q4 2019. And we had been working on this podcast for like two full years at that point. And we both had incredibly demanding full time jobs as well. So it was just like anybody who starts a business, right? Like anybody who starts a side hustle that takes over their lives, evenings, weekends, any spare minute commutes, lunch breaks at work, we were just doing the podcast because we started off as a weekly show. So it was really intense. And then when we were like, finally we have enough money that both of us can go full-time we did we're like finally we can have a life again and then it was like March we were in lockdown <laughs> and it was just like you couldn't make it up it seemed completely crazy and then the only thing we could do was the podcast so it was I think it actually worked out great for us and um, in that it really spent two years making us focus on the show but during that time we had planned all of this stuff to like go on the US tour then but obviously all of that was like not even close to happening. So our agents at the time were like, do you want to write a book since you are locked in your house? Um, and we were like, yes, okay. And so we decided to write this book that really was meant to be, I guess, a bit of an amalgamation of all of the things that we had learned doing true crime for the two years before that. And obviously there are people that have been doing it for decades and decades before. We are not experts by any sense of the um, imagination. But really what we wanted the book to be about, because it evolved a lot, was the fact, and you guys know, this right every killer that we come across and really we only focused on multiple killers we weren't really focusing on like one-off killers in the book multiple killers that often you you see people try to talk about them as monsters or whatever to kind of separate them from from us as human beings and what we wanted to do was kind of examine each of the things that drives a person to become a multiple killer and how all of them are actually really human desires or uh, traits or things that happen to all of us but just how they become perverted in the mind of a killer so like from chapter one it's myth busting about like genetics about how there's so much misunderstanding but the impact your genetics can have on um, people becoming more prone to violence or more likely to become a serial killer then we go into adolescence then we go into sex relationships we just sort of wanted to go through all of the things that make us human but how just a slight deviation from those things in a person could lead to somebody who is dangerous yeah so we wrote that and unbelievably it became a sunday times bestseller here in the uk which was pretty cool for us and that's it and now it's out there it yeah was really special really special also absolutely the hardest thing we've ever done and there's so much blood sweat and tears in that book it's haunted like it's uh it's really it was uh a gargantuan task anyone thinking about writing one uh prepare for it to take over your entire life well congratulations on the book and the success of it i'm curious with the analysis that you are putting into the behaviors of someone who kills mm -hmm. who were you consulting because like you said you came from a background that wasn't psychology just the podcast experience was that enough for you to feel confident to put your knowledge into into words yeah sure i think as any true crime podcaster knows um referencing the shit out of everything is the only way to cover your ass that very much like the attitude we went into the book with you know we're not experts but experts have books that you can read <laughs> you know what i mean and they'll have a very small circle of things that they will know everything about and so through the book 
sort of skipping between lots and lots of experts, we'll be able to give them a bit more of an overview, which is what true crime podcasting is anyway. I think that's important because people want to know these things and you have to be relatable. So if you're coming from like this steeped in education background, sometimes that can be a little bit exactly. heavy handed. It can be a little bit dense. So I think it's important to approach it from like a very human point of view. And I also think actually one of the benefits of um, people like us who do podcasting and probably why podcasting of the type that we do is so popular where we're not experts, we're sort of going on that journey of discovery with the listener or with the reader. A lot of people who write books, for example, who are experts in a specific field, if you are an academic expert in one specific thing, you are going to write a book that is fully geared towards and leaning towards your particular study of area being the most important thing possible in that particular case or that particular topic. Whereas for us, we didn't really have any skin in the game. Like there's no benefit to me of saying this is absolutely true when it comes to like things that are clearly can be disproven in the world of like genetics and violence, for example, because we haven't spent 16 years researching it and it would make my entire life's work invaluable if I then said that it wasn't true. So I think being able to scrutinize different research papers, different books, different academics, different theories without having a particular tie to any of them actually is maybe, in my opinion, what makes the book or the podcast successful because we don't care what the answer is. We're just curious. And I think people who listen are also curious. And I think they enjoy going on that journey of discovery from with us because we're not coming from a starting point where we've already made up our minds because it's just most beneficial to us for that to be the case. Well, yeah. And I think that that really conveys the message more clearly to people who, like you said, aren't coming from it in a academic point of view. Like, we're all humans. We're all curious about things. And you need that information to be delivered in a way where you can digest it. Yeah. Now, let's talk about your tour to the U.S. Tell us about this. You're coming stateside this March 2023. Yeah, 15 cities. We've done two UK only tours. And then we just did a UK and Europe tour in October. And we really enjoy doing it. And we're good at it. The like live performance aspect of the show is like one of our favorite things to do and obviously the show having changed so much during covid when we couldn't do anything and like you you guys all know as podcasters like until you physically meet the listeners it's really difficult to like conceptualize just how many people that there are with real jobs and cars and responsibilities and stuff do you know what i mean <laughs> so that side of it is really exciting and the only show we've ever done in the states was the one we did the live recording we did at obsess fest that's the first one we'd ever done so we're really excited i need to interrupt you that i'm sorry the, the show that you did at obsess fest was the first show that you did live in the yeah. united states we were there and it was amazing <laughs> yeah, it, it was so great. well yeah. done you know we had a great time doing it and we were really glad to be there but i think when we do our tour shows you know they are like they're a, a different beast for to sure. our yeah. it's much more intensive like we have not just the slideshow it's a proper performance like that's what it's meant to yeah. feel like so yeah we're really excited that you guys are going to be coming um to see our show as well yeah, it's a new show as well we had never before seen anywhere in the world we did think about recycling because the name of the tour is a the same it's the empty-handed tour which we did in the uk but the show is different and we were thinking about recycling the same show but i genuinely think like as a performer if you're not a little bit embarrassed by something you were doing two years ago you're not growing so like i think it's 
good to like keep upping the game and i think we really have done that so i think it will be the best one yet and i do apologize for interrupting you but i was very surprised (laughs) i'm not saying that doing a show in the united states is completely different from doing a show in the uk you know audiences are audiences they're going to laugh they're going to feel affected by you know the same thing if they have the same uh, emotional spectrum but that stage with that crowd for your first one it's pretty daunting so again sorry to interrupt but well done i know we take it as a compliment but no it's not what we normally do um i think we're really looking forward to coming to the u.s and doing it doing it properly in march where are you coming we are going to seattle portland san francisco la houston dallas denver chicago minneapolis royal oak toronto washington philadelphia boston new york can you do that slower (laughs) we'll be right back after a quick word from our sponsor and a thank you to our sponsors back to the program We did want to speak about the tragic quadruple homicide that happened in November 2022. The four University of Idaho students who were murdered and the updates, the arrest of Brian Koberger, who is uh, a suspect, the only apparent suspect. From the very beginning, this case has been completely shocking. It was almost too disturbing to even like comprehend at first. Oh, 100%. When it first happened, I very much have been definitely obsessed with this case since it happened. I think with so many other cases that people cover, you can always sort of rationalize it to yourself that, well, that's what are the chances? That's not going to happen to me. This case just felt like so completely out of the blue, unimaginable, just in a way that I just think people couldn't wrap their heads around. And we have actually just recorded and and we'll be releasing tomorrow uh, a full-length episode on it on Red Handed. And I think one of the things that really felt like, why are people obsessed with this case? And I think it's because if you think about the scenario in which it happened, it's almost the perfect example of where this kind of thing shouldn't be happening. It's like six kids in a house, in a very safe town. I think, I believe Moscow, Idaho hadn't had a murder in seven years before this massacre happened. The fact that actually all four of the victims were in bed with somebody else. So we were saying, I can't think of a situation in which you would feel more safe. If I was in a house that was my student house, I was in a small town where I probably knew most people because it's not a huge population and it's mainly students. I'm in bed with either my boyfriend or my best friend. And I know there's five other people in there. And I've just ordered as one of them did, a food delivery, and I'm watching TikTok. It's almost just the destruction of total normality. And I think that's what was shocking for so many people. And honestly, since it happened, mainly since I read the probable cause affidavit, I would say I've been struggling to sleep and like felt a bit uneasy. Because I'm just like, what if someone just came into my house and murdered me? Like, that's what happened to them. And I think when you read the probable cause affidavit, I think the lines that stand out are what DM says of hearing somebody's voice saying, there's someone here. And I think we can all put ourselves in that position. And the fear is just overwhelming. And I think that's why everyone's been so caught up with this case. But that's just speaking from from my perspective on it. No, I think you're right, though. I think like home invasions that end in murders are so, so, so rare. Yeah, you said that this is something that a lot of people will say, this isn't going to happen to me or it's not going to happen to us. A lot of people don't even have that thought anymore. Like a lot of people don't even make that association, even if you're watching a horror movie and it's a scene in that horror movie, it's become a movie. So that's not reality and that's not going to happen to us. But it does happen and it does speak to the psychological position that this perpetrator was in 
when they entered that home. Where does your head go when you think about the person who enters the home to do something like this and execute it once, twice, three times, over and over? It seemed like each attack was escalating. It, it didn't seem like there was any loss of energy. What's your thoughts on the psychological position that this person's in? I mean, it's so... And again, I know all four of us do this for a living. We're meant to be thinking about what is the psychological makeup of a person like this? What could possibly be the motive? It's so hard to know. I, I do wonder if the person who did this was under the influence of something when they went in there that it felt very pre-planned um i know with the current suspect that they have there's a lot of evidence that shows maybe he was there doing intel gathering and things like this it seems like it was in some ways a highly organized crimes but in other ways it seems really frenzied and really chaotic i mean there's a dog running around there's a delivery food delivery man turning up like literally four minutes they think before the murders started if we say that it happened between 404 and 426 which seems to be the best estimate and yeah just the the escalation and did he not know that there were six people in the house um surely he would have if he had been watching it like this suspected which either shows that he's incredibly reckless because if there was only one target he was willing to go into a house that was full of people and he may have to commit multiple homicides or he was happy to commit multiple homicides from the beginning it's so hard to understand what was going through this person's mind it's weird because half of it like i said points to a highly organized and half of it doesn't like the fact if the leather sheath that they found in one of the victim's beds is related to the crime. Who leaves that sheath behind? I've seen people holding up the exact same sheath and it's enormous. How do you forget that? And just like going back there four and a half hours later with your phone turned on, if it is this person, I don't know. It seems very mixed. It seems very mixed in terms of being highly organized, but also seeming quite disorganized. Thank goodness that sheath was left because that's how they gathered DNA. And then they tracked him using forensic genetic genealogy, which I find incredible. We were talking on our subscription show last week, I think, how if these murders happened a few years ago, this would definitely still be unsolved, knowing that that was how the suspect was located and arrested. Although... In reading the affidavit, it does seem like he was on the radar much earlier than than I would have guessed. Yeah, because when they first arrested Koberger and people were asking the police department, how was he arrested? They did say outright that it was thanks to IgG. I was definitely very excited because I believe if that had been the case, like it had been purely IgG in the way they caught like um, the Golden State Killer or the Bear Brook murders, for example, then I believe this would have been one of the first, if not the first time it had been used to capture somebody in a live and active investigation rather than closing cold cases. But then when the probable cause affidavit came out, it looked like it wasn't so much like with the Golden State Killer, for example, that they got the sample and they were running it constantly through these publicly searchable databases. And then they got a hit to a family member. Then they can build out a family tree, narrow down who it definitely couldn't be like, you know, it's not going to be 85 year old grandpa Dave, who lives in Florida. So let's narrow it down to the people in the area, the right age, the right um, sex, that kind of thing. That's what I had thought. But it doesn't look like that's what happened. It looks like they found the DNA, but had nothing to compare it to because Koberger had never been arrested before. His DNA wasn't in the system. But then they saw the white Hyundai Elantra that had been caught on multiple CCTV cameras in the area. And then they obviously had his phone number. They were able to get the phone warrant uh, search done and see that he had been in the area multiple times and that the car and the phone almost track exactly 
from the Washington State campus to King Road, back to Pullman, which is where Koberger obviously lived. And it all seemed to match the timeline of the killings. And during the time of the killings, the phone is switched off and the car is not caught on any CCTV because presumably it's not moving during that time. I think the shocking thing was then they go 2,500 miles away, test rubbish that's found outside the house of Koberger, who is the suspect because of the car and the cell phone, and find that the male whose DNA is on that rubbish would be 99.9% chance match of being the biological father of the suspect profile found in the sheath. And just the fact that it was found on the other side of the country makes that even more compelling to me. And it was the place that they looked that they found it. If Um, it isn't Koberger, I will be completely amazed. Like I don't, obviously, allegedly, 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 but like, I just don't see how it cannot be him. You know what's really interesting about this conversation is we're talking about matching through DNA. You just detailed a timeline, distances, and the whole progression of the investigation. And I couldn't help think about the O.J. Simpson trial (laughs) and how there was literally a blood trail from the crime scene on his car leading back to his person on his hand. And they used DNA, but it was used to get him off. It was used to say it's 98% accurate, but there's that 2%. You never know. So it's funny that our conversation has changed. Oh, absolutely. And I think now, if anything, the danger is, and that's what we wanted to make sure in the episode we were recording, or at least what was conscious in my head. We don't want to say there has to be DNA because obviously they're taking apart the car now. They've seized his white Hyundai and they'll be taking it apart. No matter how much he thinks he's cleaned it, if he is the killer, they will find something. Unless he put down plastic sheeting all over that car. And even then he could have missed something. If it's there, they're going to find it. But at the same time, I also want to be careful with, that commentary or that narrative because then it could really kick us in the face in future crimes or people are like well there wasn't any dna there so how do you know he did it since the oj simpson trial i think juries the public lay people we've all become much more au fait with dna but i think now you see the flip side of it where if there isn't any dna if there isn't any csi magic forensics then people are like well he can't be guilty because you didn't find anything and that's also dangerous for example we covered the scott peterson case we did a two-parter on that in december that was our last case of 2022 i 100 think scott peterson killed Lacey Peterson and Connor Peterson. I have no doubt in my mind that that man is exactly where he should be. I was very relieved to see that he did not get a um, a new trial granted to him. And I hope he spends the rest of his life in prison and I don't care about him. No matter how much evidence you put forward to people that shows brick after brick after brick that builds this enormous wall of his guilt, people are like, but they didn't find any DNA. And I'm like, that's not the only thing that can convict somebody. And I think we are in danger of going too far where without that juries feel uncomfortable almost. We'll be right back after a quick word from our sponsor. And a thank you to our sponsors. Back to the program. And Koberger seemed like someone who was aware of the possibility of leaving prints. He was apparently wearing gloves in a supermarket afterwards. I think he is one of those people whose ambition far exceeds their ability. I think he probably obviously as a PhD criminology student etc etc I don't think he's this magical evil genius that the press have been making him out to be I think that's being too kind I think he probably thought that he was going to mastermind the whole thing and commit the perfect crime but obviously was incapable of doing so and made some really really fundamental mistakes do you think that the media is like looking for a Hannibal Lecter I think they always are I think that's one of the key things that we covered in the book as well is that like it's very easy for us to think that 
people who commit multiple murders are not like us, that they are this other thing that is so monstrous and ununderstandable and like indescribable that we couldn't possibly get ourselves into that situation. But the reality is nobody goes around killing people for no reason. I think it's also the idea, um, to your point, Lance, that we have absolutely got a culture. You know, I'm not here to be like, oh, this is so wrong. It's always been the case. This isn't like a modern phenomenon. But this kind of glamorization, right, of serial killers, that even feels like hacky to say now because it's so over-discussed. But what I also mean about it is this kind of romanticization of them as being hyper-intellectual, being omnipotent, being these kind of grand chess master level geniuses who are always 10 steps ahead of the police and everybody else and I think that comes obviously from like entertainment it comes from Hollywood it comes from books it comes from serial killer movies those kind of things in which if the serial killer isn't those things then why would anybody watch it because it's not very interesting to have a cat and mouse game where the mouse is stupid. When the media then got their hands on someone like Brian Koberger when they found out that he was um, a PhD in criminology it was just like all of their dreams come true because it was implying that he was this man who was this mega genius who had somehow got this uh, secret backdoor knowledge into how to get away with crimes. And then you find out that he drove his own car there, if it is him, obviously, that he took his cell phone with him and turned it off during just the hour of the murders and that he left a sheath there with his DNA on it. So no, he's not a genius. Very few of these people are. I think what we always say is when you think about multiple serial killers, I I know Brian Koberger, he's not been proven to do this and even that wouldn't make him a serial killer, but it's they typically kill people that they have no connection to, which makes it very hard for law enforcement to investigate. And if you spend all of your time fixating on one thing, like how you were going to get away with killing a bunch of people, then anyone could be reasonably good at it and with luck get away with it for a little while doesn't make him a genius and it doesn't make any of them geniuses ted kaczynski is probably the closest we'd get to a genius and he was found in a shed grubby and with no food in there so like i don't know in what way are we calling them geniuses you know yeah but ted kaczynski chose to do that i just want your opinion on this we're talking about how this individual is not a genius but as a parent of one of those people who were murdered that night in that fashion, that doesn't matter to them. No, of course not. Like, they don't care if he wasn't a genius or is a genius. How do true crime consumers make that delineation between looking at the crime itself, reading the documents, wanting to understand the individual, and then having to humanize the family? I think it comes down to the fact of there's nothing wrong with being interested in this story or in crimes like this. There's nothing wrong with that at all. You know, we all make a living talking about true crime. Um, So I would always say there is nothing wrong with it. There is nothing grotesque about having an interest in it. Even the media now talking about like, oh, criminology, this, that. And I'm like, no, like there's nothing perverse about any of this. What I would say is the ethical consumption of it comes from respecting the victims and the way in which people talk about them and also understanding who the victims are. Frankly, some of the bullying of the survivor, DM in particular, has just been completely unbelievable to read and like really, really sad 
to see. And I think with regards to the families, it's the same. And I think most people have the level of empathy that they know what lines not to cross. I think the bigger danger is these internet sleuths and people who think that they are doing quote unquote investigating. When I would always say, unless you are a police officer working on that case, you're not investigating anything. You're simply researching and reading what's already out there. You're not generating new lines of inquiry, for example, and you don't have all of the information. But then pointing the finger at various people and destroying lives. This case only happened eight weeks ago. I don't know if you guys saw, I'm sure you did, like the accusations that were hurled first at Kaylee Gonzalez's ex-boyfriend. I was shocked by the number of media outlets that were naming him, putting his picture on their, you know, nightly broadcasts, even to just say, oh, you know, should we have suspicions about this person? It was so unethical to me. And I think that's the real unethical side of it. I don't think having an interest, reading this probable cause affidavit, being interested in the psychology of this killer, why he did it, why he did these things. I just do not think there is anything wrong with this at all. I think people are naturally going to be interested. It'd be hard not to be. But don't go around pointing the finger at people. You don't know what you're talking about. We even now don't have all the information and people are going after DM. We don't know for sure what even happened. And people blaming her for going back into the room and closing the door. I find it hard to believe anyone to say what they would do in that situation. Though I will tell you for nothing that if I was her, I would have gone back into my room and shut the door and hoped and prayed to have survived that and done whatever I had to do to not be murdered, if that's what she even knew was happening. So no, I think the ethical side of it is just that even some of the family seem to have been facing harassment from the public, which is unbelievable. That's a whole nother conversation to get into the mind of those people who would cyber bully victims of uh, the families of victims of this kind of massacre. I, I, I don't understand it at all. Yeah, I think in terms of delineation between like looking at the crime and then empathizing towards the families I don't think it's that hard it's just don't be a dick it's we discuss it so much in the true crime space like how to ethically do I don't think it's difficult I think it's just like don't make jokes about things that aren't fucking funny and like be an empathetic human being I don't think I don't think those are difficult things to achieve you totally nailed it I mean we totally always overthink that ethical line when it's so easy you know when you've gone over a line. You know it. You know when someone else has. It is obvious. I think it's there's no shame in interest. But don't be a dick and leave the families alone. Leave the survivors alone. It's just mind-boggling to yeah, me. Yeah, get a job. Like, how much time do you have? And these people who feel it's somehow their role in life to bully this. I mean, obviously she's 20, but I'm going to say she's a girl because when I was 20, I would consider myself that. Like to bully this girl on the internet, it is crazy. And even if you, as a person who is doing this, don't give a shit about the empathetic side of this, you think that this person does deserve to be bullied for what they did, then at least think about it from the practical standpoint because she presumably is the only one who saw this person this killer from the evidence that we have at the moment we need and by we i mean the prosecution the uh, fbi the people investigating this crime who are going to spend now the next 12 months probably building a case to go to trial need dm to cooperate need her to tell them the truth about what she heard in the house what she saw in the house and what she did and what she didn't do and if she becomes scared to open her mouth or to tell the truth because of the backlash she's scared she's going to receive on the internet and she stops talking or she starts lying to protect herself now then how does that help these people who say what they want is justice for those four victims 
like shut the hell up there are so many ramifications to these kind of things not just ethically um in an emotional sense but also practically as well dm like going back into the room I could have saved her life the suspect went back to the location the next morning before the police were even called exactly so people being like well why didn't she go out well he was back there at nine o'clock nine thirty um and yes she didn't know this or maybe she did i don't know as for the question like I don't know if he saw her because it's not that obvious in the probable cause affidavit whether Brian Koberger or whoever it was, whoever the person in the house was, I guess I should say, saw DM or not. She says that she sees him, but he just walks out of the door. She did exactly the right thing. I think the nature of the crimes suggests that if he had seen her, we would be having a different conversation about DM. That's why I think maybe he didn't see her. She just cracked her door open to look outside and she saw him then maybe he didn't see her at all. Because, yeah, you're right. It does make sense that why would he leave her alive? Also, it's completely ridiculous for people to criticize anybody for going back into their room and locking the door. You don't know if there's 20 people out there. And also, there's no proof that she even knew what was happening. What the hell was happening? Yeah. They'd all been drinking that day. Um, That's no judgment. They're students. They're young people. Like, of course they are. 4.30 in the morning, she's woken up by sounds. But there's like a doorbell going off with a door, uh, food delivery turning up, the dogs barking. Like, there's all sorts of crazy noise. And we have this thing called like normalcy bias, right? Where people, when they are um being bombarded with stimuli like this or seeing things like this, they will want to think that it is something that can be explained away. Her mind's not going to jump to, oh my God, there's someone in the house and everyone's been murdered. She may just have thought it's some guy that one of the girls hooked up with and he's leaving or it was a friend or something. We don't even know what she thought. And I know they said in the probable cause affidavit that she was frozen in shock or something. We made this point that those probable cause affidavits are also written to get an arrest. We don't know what actually happened and whether she even realized and put two and two together as to what had happened. Because why would she? That's such a crazy thing to think that everyone had just been murdered. You mentioned this case is keeping you up at night. What specifically is keeping you up? Do you know what? I think it's the feeling of when you look at this case, you listen to it, you think about it, you read the probable cause affidavit of one of the girls saying there's someone here. And I think it's putting yourself in those victim's shoes and thinking about how unbelievably scared all of them and DM must have been that night. And I think that's what makes me feel uneasy is that how particularly Zana Kanodal, who we assume is probably the last one to have died given DM's testimony. The fact that she just got food delivered after a night out, it's four o'clock and I can't stop imagining her in bed with her boyfriend next to her, who's not a small guy, in a house filled with her friends, like we said, on TikTok eat, eating a takeaway and suddenly there's a man in your room who has got a knife. Like, I think it's just that crazy juxtaposition of complete normality smashed together with the most absurd thing you could think of happening. And I think that's what freaks me out. It could just happen in a second like it did to them. I am uh, very disturbed by Koberger being a criminology student and, and wondering if this is some kind of like research or something. That keeps me up. Wondering who's consuming what and what they're going to do in the future. While I don't think it's irrelevant that he was a criminology student, I also do think do we really think that people like Bundy and BTK and all of these like killers in the past weren't reading about and consuming everything they could about previous killers and reading about them and learning about them. We've seen from multiple school shooters in particular that when they've searched their rooms, they have found that they were obsessively reading about previous killers and they had uh, an obsession with it. And I think that just because he took his into the academic 
sphere. I think that came with his narcissistic personality, that I think he wanted to be an expert in something. I think he couldn't sort of excel maybe socially in other areas. So I think he thought, I can do this academically. And I think he just picked a subject he liked and that would allow him to research the thing he was most interested in. But I think all killers probably definitely research these things to a massive extent. They maybe just don't take it into the classroom. And also we have to say that even if you are obsessed with those things and spend all your time reading about it, doesn't make you a killer. This just happened to be what he chose to do. It's a really good point. And it actually makes me feel a little bit better about the whole psychology behind him because... At least that put him in front of people or it would put somebody like him in front of other people that would recognize that. I was thinking, well, what if it's a mailman who knows where you live and knows your patterns and is secretly researching all of this and comes really out of nowhere? I think him wanting to be an academic probably wasn't the best choice for him. Like you said, his ego sort of bit him in the ass there. But they used to say like a psychopath doesn't know they're a psychopath. Like this guy... Did. And like, I think there is a lot of concentration on the fact he was doing a PhD in criminology. He'd only done one semester. One of the things we talk about often is that the character of Hannibal Lecter is really unrealistic because there's no way an actual psychopath would be told what to do by people he thought were less intelligent than him for the amount of years it takes to be a doctor. Like it's just it's pretty unrealistic. Maybe he wouldn't have completed his PhD <laughs> even if he had stuck it out. I think that's the thing is that he could absolutely be a psychopath. We know that the statistics show that lawyers, doctors, CEOs, they do actually show higher levels of psychopathy than the average person. So they can sit it out in education, but not one that has dark desires or violent fantasies. And presumably if whoever this killer was, if it is Koberger, those violent fantasies would have been there um, from much earlier. I mean, he's not that old. He's 28, which maybe a little bit older than you'd expect for a first kill, but we don't know. I know the Pennsylvania police are now looking back at previous unsolved crimes to see if he did do anything else there that he got away with. I, and I know these are unverified, but I've also seen reports that people have found of him having posted as like a 17-year-old on the internet talking about headaches he was having, something he calls like visual snow or something, and almost sounds like whiteouts or blackouts or something so you know people are now falling into that trap of could we have stopped him and i'm like no you couldn't these these things happen and they are terrifying and absolutely awful and unbelievably traumatic for everybody involved what red flags would you have been looking for he was a weird guy who got flagged in like bars that he went to for being inappropriate with women and stuff like that. I, I think him studying criminology, all of that, we suggested, you know, one of the motives that it could be other than just the fact that he wanted to kill people. And if, say, Kaylee was the target because it looks like maybe they were killed first, her and Maddie, because it makes more sense that he started upstairs and came downstairs. But was this because he wanted to be the expert in one particular crime? Was it because he wanted to be able to offer some unbelievable insights into the infamous unsolved Idaho student murders case and he would be the only one to be able to do it? And he'd have a PhD in criminology so people would have to take him seriously. It's hard to know. All we can do is speculate. The thing I find the most troubling is the, the shattering of that that completely normal house. And it's kind of a dangerous path to go down when you're talking about identifying these markers or these characteristics of individuals and saying, this is a little odd, so is this suggestive of them being a homicidal maniac in five years? You can't start classifying and placing judgment on people for being a little odd because maybe this might happen. If he didn't have violent fantasies, then he would have just been an odd guy whoever did this. Like, that's it. We had a woman on 
who wrote a book with a psychiatrist who was James Holmes' psychiatrist, the Aurora, Colorado movie theater shooter. She was his psychiatrist before he shot up that theater. She couldn't do anything because he never specifically gave a plan. He said that he had fantasies about people's lives being value to him where he would gain value by taking people's lives. But that was like, he never went over that line to say, and by doing that, I'm going to kill a lot of people in a movie theater. It's just a really, really fine line there before you're able to say, all right, this is a dangerous person. Absolutely. And I think that's why with Koberger, if it is him, we've had people come out saying that they knew him, they were classmates with him. All of the things in isolation, like his classmates saying this, women he'd been on dates with in the past saying certain things. Even if you put them all together, they don't paint a picture of anything other than a socially inept individual. Maybe in his apartment, they'll find journals that explain more about his motivations. But I just think, yeah, there's no way this could have been stopped. And that's probably what also makes it even more terrifying. Thank you so much for uh, spending some time with us today. We really appreciate it. That was a great conversation. Thank you for having us. Thank you. This was great. It's always good to speak to you guys. And yeah, see you at the show. Yeah. Give another plug for your show. Red Handed is if people want another true crime podcast to add to their list if they've never listened before. It's just me and Anna talking about a different crime every week. You should check it out. You two are so humble. Oh, oh, you should check it out. It's a really good show and people need to listen to it. I think uh, <laughs> you're you. being a little too, I think you're being a little too oh, American. We're just being very British about it. I've always wanted to ask, do you ever pretend that somebody's on the phone when you take the pictures with the red phone? Who, who do you think is on the phone? It's my mom asking if I want to get to Car Giant. Grand Canyon University, we believe in equal opportunity, and the American dream starts with purpose. Whether your pursuit involves a bachelor's, master's, or doctoral degree, GCU's learning environments are designed for supportive networking and collaboration. With over 330 academic programs, GCU provides a path to help you fulfill your dreams. The pursuit to serve others is yours. Find your purpose at GCU. Private. Christian. Affordable. Visit gcu.edu.